Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. On this week's PreserveCast, join us as we talk with Dr. Shirley Green about her book, Revolutionary Blacks, Discovering the Frank Brothers, Freeborn Men of Color, Soldiers of Independence. Shirley's book follows William and Benjamin Frank through their military service in the Continental Army, their experience as free black soldiers, and the interesting paths they traveled. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and today I'm thrilled to be chatting with historian and author Shirley Green, and we're going to be talking all about her book, Revolutionary Blacks, Discovering the Frank Brothers, Freeborn Men of Color, Soldiers of Independence, and what uh, an important time to have this conversation as the nation approaches the commemoration of the 250th anniversary of American independence and recognizing the important role um, that men like the Frank brothers had in that story. But before we get there, we love to get to know people and um, understand uh, a little bit about their path to the work that they do. So Shirley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and how did you end up writing a book like this? What was your your path into history and preservation? Thanks for the uh, question, Nick. And thank you for the invitation to be on on your show here. I was born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, which is in Northwest Ohio. Um, um, they, at one point, the states of Ohio and Michigan actually fought a war over this strip of land. And um, Ohio won, of course, and Toledo is in Ohio. Um, I was born and raised here, as I said earlier. Um, my father is a native Toledoan or was a native Toledoan. Um, he attended uh, Wilberforce University, which is an HBCU, which is located in central Ohio. He went there on a basketball scholarship. My mother is from Lynn, Massachusetts, and she was also attending Wilberforce University. They met there. Uh, they got married and uh, decided to move back to Toledo and started their family. And that's where I was born and raised here. Um, in the dedication of my book, I like to say that um, I dedicate the book to my mother, and I like to say that uh, she and her family were the ones that gave me the story to tell about the Frank brothers. But my father, um, who was a history major at Wilberforce University, gave me my love of history. And um, then the legacy of their story, I wanted to pass on to my son and my grandchildren and let them know that their family has very, very deep roots in American history. It's, it's a wonderful sort of talk about a legacy and your father's legacy and sort of how it all works through this. Um, what kind of a career did you have up until this point? What were you, what have you done professionally? That's a really interesting story. Uh, I came at the study of history from a very non-traditional background. I followed in my father's footsteps. He was a Toledo police officer and I became an officer um, after him. I was one of the first women who would work the street as a patrol officer in the late 70s. And I was also the first female lieutenant on the Toledo Police Department as well. So that was my first career. But I had that level of history from my father. 
Um, and at some point in my career, the Toledo Police Department decided that they wanted more educated police officers, better educated police officers. So they started to reimburse us if we decided to go back to school. And that's what I did. I went back to school, got my undergraduate degree while I was still working as a police officer. And then upon my retirement, and we were able to take early retirements back in the day, I was able to go to graduate school at the University of Toledo and got my master's degree in history there. And I finished up and got my PhD at Bowling Green State University, which is about a half hour drive south of Toledo. Fantastic. And so the beginning of, uh, of my uh, pathway into history. Yeah. And I love that everybody has a different pathway. And I also um, think it's so important just to hear about, you know, for some people who are out there thinking, oh, I, I listened to this and I like this, but, you know, I, I have this career and this is what I'm doing right now. I think you're sort of an inspiration in that you can always reinvent and have a different uh, career. And, you know, you're a patrol officer that now is a PhD historian. I mean, what a what an amazing um, story. Um, and speaking of amazing stories, um, you, you you stumbled on one. So tell us about when did you first hear about William and Benjamin Frank's story? That was so interesting because I was always aware that my uh, maternal grandfather was born and raised in Nova Scotia, Canada, even though he was living in, in Lynn, Massachusetts, and I had the opportunity to go visit my mother's family when I was younger. So I always knew that we called him Pa, my grandfather was from Nova Scotia. I just assumed as I got older that his family made their way to Nova Scotia via the Underground Railroad as, as fugitive slaves. But as I was sitting in an undergraduate class at the University of Toledo, it was an African-American history class, the professor, uh, Dr. Nikki Taylor, was talking about the first great wave of emancipation for African-Americans um, after the American Revolution. And she also started to talk about, well, during and after the American Revolution, of course, but she also was talking about a group of individuals called Black Loyalists who made their way to Nova Scotia after the war because their side lost. And as soon as she said, combine the words, black loyalists and Nova Scotia, my head popped up and I said, hey, wait a minute, my grandfather's from Nova Scotia. Could he have possibly been part of that migration of black loyalists? So um, I, after class, I talked to Dr. Taylor and she said, you should really check into your family history. Went home that evening, called my mother up and I said, hey, deposit people, get to Nova Scotia. Were they part of this wave of black loyalists? She said, no, no, no. It's the Underground Railroad. It's the typical story. And I said, I don't think so. So I finished talking to her and I called her older sister, my Aunt Hattie, who was living in Rhode Island at the time, which is so funny because um, she had moved there to be near her daughter who got a job teaching at the University of Rhode Island. And unbeknownst to them, they were living about a 30-minute drive from where the Frank brothers were born and raised, but they didn't know it. So when I called her and asked her about how Paz people got to Nova Scotia, she said the same thing my mom said. Underground Railroad, future slaves, they were running away from slavery trying to gain their freedom. And I said, I don't think that's the story. So finally, I called their older brother, my Uncle Ben Franklin. And um, he says, listen... I told you all this story. And I said, no, you didn't, Uncle Benny. And he said, okay, here's the story. There were two young men, freeborn, 
last name Frank, who fought with the Black Regiment during the Revolutionary War. And I said, okay, that's a great story. I didn't know that. That's the first time I'm hearing it. But what does that have to do with Pa living in Nova Scotia? And then it became my mission to try to figure out how to connect these two stories. The story about these two young men who fought with the Black Regiment during the Revolutionary War and the fact that my grandfather was born and raised in Nova Scotia, Canada. And that's the first time I heard about the Frank brothers. I was stunned. Um, I was amazed. I did not think my family's roots went that far back in American history. And what is really unique about the story about the Frank brothers and their freedom so early on is only about 10% of African-Americans living today can trace their family's freedom back to before the Civil War, before the end of the Civil War. So that's what I thought that made the story such a unique story to tell. I mean, just stunning, too, that you're working on something like this and that it happened that you were able to tell the story of something that happened in your family, right? Not only are you doing the work of, of preservation, excuse me, of history and, you know, working on your master's and your PhD, but then it's not, you're just not telling a really fascinating story. You're telling a story that is directly connected to you and also unique in that it's the loyalism story. So we're talking about American independence and the Revolutionary War. <clears throat> I think a lot of people think, oh, of course, we're, they're, they're Americans. We're going to talk about how they, um, you know, fought to overthrow the evil British and, um, surprise that these were loyalists. Now, talk to us about, we'll have so many questions, but one is, um, what's the balance of oral history versus documentary history that you had to rely on for doing this kind of work? So uncle, you said his name was Ben Franklin, which is sort of perfect too for, for this story. Um, he tells you, this is, I mean, sort of a component of oral history that here's the story. And then you go from there to are they pretty well documented in the actual documentary evidence? Are you able to find records of them? How much what, talk to us about the balance of doing this kind of work? Well, first off, whenever you try, try to write uh, about your own family history, you have a couple of different audiences that you have to deal with. The first audience, of course, for my work was historians because I used uh, the, my family's uh, story as part of my dissertation. So I had to make sure that I had the documentary evidence to back what I was saying in the dissertation. But I also had to make sure that my own family members uh, were not going to get too ticked off at me about writing about certain aspects of our family history. So that was one part of it. The other thing is my work is is really rooted in my family's oral history. And what my Uncle Benny told me that particular day was just a, a fragment of that history. Hmm. Um, and as I started to do research into the story about the Frank brothers and tried to connect them to uh, my grandfather's family in Nova Scotia, I came across a work by a local historian by the name of William Ingalls. He produced this work in 1929. And he was in Nova Scotia to do research on some of the oldest cemeteries in North America. And they were located in Nova Scotia. And he was uh, doing research in one of those cemeteries. And he came across my great grandfather, a guy by the name of Thomas Henry Franklin. 
And Thomas Henry Franklin was a landscaper in Nova Scotia, in Granville and Granville Ferry, Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. And he was working in the cemetery on that particular day when historian Ingalls was working there. And the historian actually took a picture, a photograph of my uh, great grandfather, which is in the book. And he also had a conversation with him as well. They were talking about the mosquitoes and how difficult it was to work with all the mosquitoes trying to attack them. But my great grandfather also added to the Franklin oral tradition, oral history, when he explained to the historian that his grandfather came from Africa and that Franklin was an uncommon name in these parts. So now I can attach that aspect of the story to the Franklin oral history. I went back to my Uncle Ben and asked him about that part of it. And he said, oh yeah, this is the rest of the story. The first Frank came from Africa by way of Haiti and made his way to Rhode Island. And then two of his descendants, the Frank brothers, fought in the Revolutionary War with the Black Regiment. So that is the Franklin oral history that I was given in its entirety. It was my job to put documents and other evidence to that story. And for the most part in the book, you can see that I do that. I find a, a free Frank family in Rhode Island. I find the records of William and Ben Frank in the military records. I uh, am able to tie a Ben Franklin as part of the Black Loyalist migration to Nova Scotia. And also I was able to, with the help of my uncle Ben, to do genetic genealogy. And so I got uh, samples of my uncle Ben's DNA, sent it into a DNA testing um, facility and found out that he was a match for a young man who lived in Togo, which is located on the west coast of Africa. And he was also a match for a young man or a man who was residing in the Dominican Republic, which is a next door neighbor of Haiti in the Caribbean. So all of those things started to fall into place as I was doing uh, my research into the Frank family. I feel like a lot of people listening who work in this field or write in this field are probably pretty jealous of uh, of the experience you have because it's like, man, you not only get to tell the family story, but you get to tell this dynamic, interesting story of the American Revolution and loyalism. You, you keep mentioning it. So for people listening who haven't picked up the book, um, and I'll say it again so that you're, you're, you have a chance uh, to get it because it, 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 it's a great read, which is Revolutionary Blacks Discovering the Frank Brothers, Freeborn Men of Color, Soldiers of Independence. And we'll have links in the show notes so you can buy it. But um, you've mentioned a couple of times sort of the Black Loyalist, Black Regiment. For people who are at all familiar with the revolution, they might be familiar with the Ethiopian Regiment, um, they've heard that in, in Lord Dunmore. Um, but where, what regiment did they fight in and where were, where were they engaged? Well, the book relates the experiences of the Frank brothers and other uh, free men of color that served with the Rhode Island regiments. I was able to track over 50 uh, free men of color that served with the Frank brothers. So the Frank brothers uh, enlisted into the Continental Army with the Rhode Island regiments in April of 1777. So that's relatively early in the war. They were both young men. Um, the older brother, um, William Frank, 
enlisted uh, away from home. So that led me to believe that he was already out on his own trying to make a living. And he enlisted in a place called Tiverton, Rhode Island, which is uh, across the state from their hometown of Johnston, Rhode Island. His younger brother, Ben, enlisted in Providence, Rhode Island. And both of them enlisted in the spring of 1777. Um, They enlisted um, in Rhode Island regiments that were integrated meaning that Mm. the four or five companies that were under the umbrella of the 1st and 2nd Rhode Island regiments were completely integrated and led by uh, white command officers. During um, the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress required states and colonies, excuse me, states to have certain numbers of regiments that they had to supply to the Continental Army. And for the state of Rhode Island, they had, because they're a smaller state, they had to supply at least two regiments. And that was the 1st Rhode Island Regiment and the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment. And in the spring of um, 1777, the Frank brothers joined the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment under the uh, command of Colonel Israel Angel. Um, Their first year uh, at war uh, was tough for them. Um, the camp conditions were not the best, and I relate all this in the book. Um, they did fight in a pivotal battle, um, the Battle of Red Bank uh, in New Jersey. Um, during that battle, uh, they were able to defend Fort Mercer there, but eventually they would have to uh, retreat um, from Fort Mercer um, after losing some comrades and others um, during the battle. Um, both William and Ben were able to survive the battle, but their survival of that particular battle just led them to march with the rest of the Continental troops to that crazy winter of Valley Forge, 1777 to 1778. And both their brothers were stationed there during that winter. And you said that they were part of the Continental Army. So people listening are probably a little confused right now. Because they were they they were continentals and then became loyalists. What happened there? Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. That is the trajectory of the book, and it's the trajectory of one of the brothers. So I'll I'll give you a better synopsis of the book. Um, the first year they fought the major battle of Rhode Island. They eventually uh, did a winter encampment at Valley Forge. While at Valley Forge. Um, they lost a, the Rhode Island regiments lost a lot of soldiers due to disease and desertion. And because of that, they did not have enough soldiers to field two regiments. And General James Barnum, who is the commander of the Rhode Island regiments at Valley Forge, went to George Washington and suggested that he should be allowed or have some of his command officers go back to the state of Rhode Island and raise a battalion of enslaved men to form a second battalion. And they did do that. Uh, The Rhode Island General Assembly allowed them, they passed something called the Slave Enlistment Act of 1778, which allowed for the recruitment and enlistment of enslaved men into the Rhode Island regiments. When that occurred, they uh, decided to, and I don't, I've never seen an order about this, but they decided to segregate the Rhode Island troops. So the Frank brothers and other uh, free men of color who were serving in the second Rhode Island regiment were transferred to the first Rhode Island regiment. And then the white soldiers that were in the first Rhode Island regiment were transferred to the second Rhode Island regiment. And the first Rhode Island regiment 
with William Frank, Ben Frank, other freeborn men of color, including Native Americans, and mm -hmm. the formerly enslaved men were all assigned to the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, which then became known as the Black Regiment. After that, they fought in a major battle on their own home soil in Rhode Island, the Battle of Rhode Island. And um, depending on which historian you talk to, it was either a victory or defeat. Uh, the uh, Rhode Island expedition, which they were a part of, was uh, put in place to push the British off of Aquidneck Island, which is where the uh, port, the Newport is on Aquidneck Island. And it was their job to push the British out of uh, Aquidneck Island. They were not able to do that. And as they were retreating off the island, they fought this pivotal battle of Rhode Island. And they were able to forestall the British and the Hessians from overcoming their positions. And they were able to retreat off the island safely. So after that, um, they were assigned to patrol duty along the shore land of uh, Rhode Island. And it was during this period of time that the younger brother makes this mistake that only, not a mistake, but makes the decision that only younger brothers can make. He decides to get married during wartime. And he marries a young lady by the name of Sarah Wilbur, and she has a child. And if your listeners know how difficult it was for Rhode Island soldiers to get paid regularly, to have proper equipment. So there is just no way that a young Ben Frank can take care of a wife and a child. And he was not able to do so. Um, after their marriage, Sarah Wilbur, now Sarah Frank, had to go to the Providence Town Council, which is where she and her child were living, to get assistance to take care of her. She was not able to do so, but they did pay her traveling expenses to her hometown. They warned her out of her out of Providence so she could go back to her hometown and let her hometown in Middleborough, Massachusetts, take care of her. Um, I was able to find the marriage record of Ben Frank and Sarah Wilbur. It's just fascinating finding that because the um, elder John Gordon was the person who officiated at their marriage. Um, at the bottom of the uh, marriage license or notice, he he mentions that Ben Frank was a Negro soldier. So, mm. of course, I knew that was my Ben Frank. That was just mm. so interesting there. But afterwards, um, while during a winter encampment a, a few years later, um, Ben decides to desert. And that is the connection that I was able to make with the Nova Scotia Franks or Franklins and these two young men that served with the Black Regiment. Ben Frank deserts. Um, he leaves um, in March, or at least he's carried on the records in March of 1781 as deserting. And um, I try to understand why this desertion took place. In the book, I call it the winter of discontent during this uh, winter encampment. Um, there were issues with food. There was issues with equipment. I believe the, um, there were issues with their assignments. They were now assigned um, away from the general camp uh, and the rest of the Continental Army and away from the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment. Um, and at this point in time, Ben has served three years. Um, the military records say that he uh, enlisted for the duration of the war. But he may have thought that he only enlisted for three years and decided to self-furlough uh, 
any way you look at it, he deserted. And once he deserts, he drops off the records. I cannot find him anywhere else in the records, in the military records. Um, there are other um, members of the 50 or so men that I tracked during this period of time who also deserted during this, this time period. A lot of them were retaken or came back to service, but Ben Frank was not one of them. And the next time I find anyone similar to Ben Frank is a, a gentleman by the name of Ben Frankum, who is listed uh, in the Book of Negroes as one of the Black loyalists that have to evacuate out of New York at the end of the war. So he's considered a loyalist, not that he fought for the British. Fought, he actually was a Continental soldier that then is considered a loyalist because he deserted and he needs to get out because they're going to say, hey, wait a second, during the war, you <laughs> you self-furloughed. I like that, that term. Um, what, I mean, just there's so many twists and turns in this, and it is just, I mean... If you're going to pick up a book and, and, and read about the revolution, what a, what a fun and interesting and important story to read, um, one like this. Um, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of the 250th anniversary of American independence and um, complex and um, sort of dynamic stories like this are important because I think they paint the picture uh, appropriately and authentically that it it wasn't cut and dry. It wasn't all of one thing or all of the other. Here's a here's somebody who fought for American independence, but at then some point said, you know what, I'm I'm done with this. And then as a result of that, ends up having to leave the country and start a new life uh in Nova Scotia, um, which which practically makes Massachusetts look warm. Um so I mean he he went way north. Um as we approach America 250, I mean, obviously picking up a book like this is is a good start. Um, but do you have any hopes or aspirations for the way that the commemoration will take place and, and how people in particular will recognize or, or um, sort of stop to think about the role of not only loyalists, but about black soldiers and about the, the diversity of, of individuals who were engaged in the revolution? What are your hopes for the 250th? I think it would be nice if we tell a more compelling uh, and a more complex story about the origins of, uh, of America. Um, I teach early American history um, at the University of Toledo and Bowling Green State University. And one of the things that we talk about when talking about the Rev American Revolution is they need to get rid of the notion that everyone was a patriot. Um, it was almost... A, one third were patriots, one third were neutral, just waiting to see who's going to win this thing. And another third were loyalists. They remain loyal to the crown. And I think by looking at the experiences of these free, freeborn men of color and how they decided to align themselves um, would be a way to start to understand that complexity. I know historian Ira Berlin looks at it another way. He, it is very uh, simple, but it's very uh, accurate. Um, for Black allegiance during the war. Um, Ira Boleyn argues that if you were enslaved, you were looking for whatever side was going to give you your freedom. And if you were free, like the Frank men, then you were going to look for any side that was going to assure you equality. And early on in their, um, 
in their enlistment and service with the Rhode Island Regiment, they were uh, on equal footing with white soldiers. Um, after the segregation, they may have believed that because of their work assignments mm. and their shore, shore patrol duty, and they were uh, encamped away from the main army, the main continental army, maybe they were starting to be treated a little differently. Um, the other thing about the complexity of, of the American Revolution is to look at the mobility and the movement of uh, Americans during that period of time. And the fact that uh, Ben Franklin takes this trajectory from being a patriot to being a loyalist um, because he makes this decision about leaving the patriot side is very interesting. Um, what happened to those African-Americans who ran to the British side? Um, as way you mentioned uh, Dunmore, Lord Dunmore earlier in the proclamation that he made in November of um, 1770, wow, 1776, 1775, um, where he said that if you, he welcomed all uh, enslaved people to the British cause, um, and fought for the British cause, then they would be given their freedom. And he, out of those enslaved men that ran to him, um, he uh, created the Ethiopian Regiment, which you mentioned earlier. So those types of things were going on. But what happened to all those other 80 to 100,000 uh, Blacks who ran to the British cause? Um, through ben, ben Frank's story, his trajectory, we're able to see what happens to them in New York City, um, as they are negotiating the Paris peace treaties um, in Paris, of course, and in America with George Washington and General Guy Carleton on the British side negotiating. One of the most important things with General Washington was to ensure that they got their former slaves back. And General Carleton said, no, no, we're not going to do that. If these people ran to our lines before a certain date, we will reimburse you for your loss, but we are not going to return them to you. And mm -hmm. as a result of that reimbursement, General Carlton set up commission to allow those formerly enslaved people to present themselves to the commission to assure them that they were behind British lines at a certain date and who their former owners were so they could be uh, reimbursed. And that inventory is known as the Book of Negroes. And uh, that has over 1,300 uh, formerly enslaved and free blacks listed in that book. And in the book of Negroes, I believe that Ben Frank is listed as Ben Franklin. And um, as Ben Franklin, he gets on a boat, uh, migrates to Nova Scotia, um, starts to seek his way up there. Over a period of time, his name turns, uh, changes again to Ben Franklin. And that's how I know him. And when um, I initially went to uh, Nova Scotia to do some research, um, they have a wonderful local history society, Annapolis Historical Society in Annapolis Royal, which is the county seat for um, that particular area. And in this binder, I located my grandfather, uh, John William Franklin. And he was part of the family tree, if I trace it all the way back up to the very top, of an individual by the name of Ben Franklin. And that is when I made the connection uh, with my grandfather and these two young Frank men who uh, fought in the Revolutionary War. Now, I do get pushback 
because people say, how do you know for sure that Ben Franklin is Ben Frank? How do you know for sure? And the best way to tell them is this, that oral history comes from the Canadian side. How would they know? How would they know about two young men by last name of Frank who fought in the Revolutionary War for the Black Regiment if it was not passed down to them by the original Ben Frank, then known as Ben Franklin? I mean, I, I feel like one of the most exciting things about all this, too, is, you know, kind of talking about the 250th is the stories you're telling and the work that you've done and connecting oral and documentary evidence is that and that, you know, the book that you mentioned that has so many more names like this is each one of those names has another story like this that could be told and could be researched. And there's a lot more to do. I think a lot of people think of like the American Revolution and the American Civil War and all these different sort of seminal moments in American history. And they're like, how many more books could we write about this? But the there's a lot of, um, you know, fertile ground in terms of research, obviously left to do to connect these stories and 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 enrich our understanding of the revolution. And, and personally, that's what I hope comes of the 250th is that we do paint this sort of complex picture. Um, I'm curious. So where, where do you head next? What are you working on next? How, how are you going to top this? Well, you know, uh, that's funny you should ask because uh, I'm telling the my my maternal side of, of the family here. But I thought I would uh I am also, I should say, I, um, as a result of my, uh, my police background and the fact that the first bit of historical work that I did was when I was a sergeant, a police sergeant in our planning uh, unit for the Toledo Police Department. And the chief came to me one day and said, hey, he wanted to create a police museum. And I said, I don't know anything about creating a police museum. There was an officer who had started to collect a, a, a great bit of police memorabilia, and the chief wanted to start a police museum. So we did. We started a police museum from the ground up. We established a board of trustees. We curated exhibits. We found a location. Um, and that was several years ago. The police museum is now in a new location, and I am the director of the police museum here in uh, the city of Toledo. So my next project that I'm working on is, is based on the city of, of Toledo's police department history. And I am looking at, it's going to be another micro history like the Frank brothers is a family history, but it's also micro history because you start with these two young men in a small group, a cohort of uh, black soldiers, freeborn men of color, and I was able to tell a bigger story about military service, about the creation and establishment of free black communities in early America, the story about what constitutes loyalism, uh, what happened to black loyalists. All those stories could come out of talking about William and Ben Frank. So my next work is another micro history about the first black police officer um, who was hired on, on the police department here. His name is Albert King. Um, he was hired in 1887, February of 1887. And there's also a Canadian connection because Albert King was born in Toronto, Canada. He migrated to uh, the United States and eventually settled in Toledo. And I believe his family um, actually made their way from um, Kentucky to uh, Canada by way of the Underground Railroad. That might be the factual story there, which wasn't the case for the Franklins. Um, and um, that's why he was born and raised in um, Canada. 
and um, he's the first black police officer. He was a playwright. He wrote plays. He acted in plays um, locally here in Toledo. His wife was the first black um, juvenile probation officer in the city, and his niece became the first black policewoman in 1923. So that's the story I'm working on next. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it'll be when, when that's out, let's have you back. Um, I would love to chat about that. Um, before we go, we like to ask folks if they have a favorite historic site. So I had the privilege of going to Valley Forge a couple of years ago, and it was very, very moving for me to actually be standing in the same place that the Frank brothers and their uh, other comrades uh, wintered there in Valley Forge. And it was just I that's my favorite place right now. Yeah. Um, the Rhode Island in, uh, encampment is right next to the church that is there on at the facility as well at the site as well. So it was it was very moving for me to to go there. And um, they also have a monument there to black patriots of the uh, Revolutionary War. And I had a, a chance to take a couple of pictures with that monument as well. You mentioned earlier about uh, the monument that they're putting up in Maryland. And there is one there in, in, at Valley Forge for black uh, soldiers. Yeah. Well, this has been just a fascinating conversation, a really good one that uh, I hope people will listen to and will share widely as people start thinking about how to tell how to how to tell unique and compelling um, and inclusive stories as we approach the 250th anniversary of American independence. And um, stories like your ancestors uh, are ones that help us understand the complexity of where we came from. So thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today on PreserveCast. All right. Thank you for inviting me, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.